This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. Joining me today is Mr. Wendell Potter, a longtime advocate for health insurance reform, to discuss recently released hour-long documentary, American Hospitals Healing a Broken System. Mr. Potter, Wendell, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, David. Good to be a part of it. Thank you. You're very welcome. Mr. Potter's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, to lend further evidence to the argument federal health care policy reform remains substantially inert, this documentary in some is largely a reprise of Uwe Reinhardt and Jerry Anderson's Health Affairs article published exactly 20 years ago titled, It's the Prices, Stupid. The mm. hour-long film explains health hospital care or hospital care is largely volume-driven and overemphasizes expensive specialty versus spending-efficient primary care. There exist very few constraints on commercial healthcare pricing, and hospital prices have little correlation to care quality or value defined as outcome achieved relative spending. Prices also vary significantly even within the same city. Healthcare today can be largely defined as a profit-maximizing business. Hospitals and clinical professionals are geographically maldistributed, and the problem is growing as safety net and rural hospitals continue to close. Healthcare delivery, by its very nature, does not constitute a competitive market, has been made worse by the 1980s deregulation. Today, the industry is highly concentrated. As a result, about a third of 100 million Americans uh, in the U.S. have healthcare debt owed uh, to hospitals or for hospitalization. Healthcare delivery exhibits huge gaps in health equity, and providers waste tens of billions on administering a chaotic insurance plan marketplace. Though the documentary fails to note, podcast listeners are well aware hospitals being excessively energy inefficient are a leading industry emitter of greenhouse gas pollution. Finally, this discussion will remind listeners of my interview with Brian Alexander in June 2021 regarding his book, The Hospital Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town. With me again to discuss this documentary film, American Hospitals Healing a Broken System, is Wendell Potter. So with that, Wendell, longer than I had hoped as an intro, let me ask you two questions. I think I hit most, if not all, the themes of the film, although if I missed any, certainly feel free. But my my two questions about the problem I'd like to ask is, um, what's your understanding of hospital margins? And I ask because... You know, the industry oftentimes complains their margins are negative or they're insufficient. But after you watch the film, you're certainly led in the opposite direction, that they're highly profitable. I'll just note two of the largest since 19, HCA's profit or margin has been above 10%, tenant less high, but certainly north of 5%. So again, what's your understanding of hospital margins? Well, to your point, they they do vary uh, very significantly. But even some of the so-called nonprofit hospitals uh, have plenty of money. They're sitting on uh, uh, mountains of uh, of reserves, millions and millions of dollars in reserves. Uh, some of the for-profits, like you mentioned, in fact, I was uh, uh, made aware 
in doing some work I was doing in Colorado a couple of years ago. HCA hospitals in Colorado, in many cases, have uh, had profit margins the year before about 40%. So it can be extraordinarily profitable. Uh, that's, I think that's an outlier. But still, even the, uh, uh, the nonprofits, as I noted, have significant amounts of money that they are able to put aside in, uh, in reserves, uh, excess capital that they put, they call it. Uh, and, uh, uh, they use that money over time to build facilities primarily in places where there's not as much, much need, uh, and typically in wealthier neighborhoods where there are more insured or, uh, uh, private paying customers who can afford uh, high prices. Right. As the film uh, outlines one, one issue I was surprised and, and, and I have to admit, I watched it a couple of weeks ago, but I didn't recall in my notes and I certainly didn't note uh, the film doesn't get much into the influence of private equity in healthcare. And in fact, hospitals, even safety net or nonprofit hospitals have their own private equity or venture capital uh, firms, but there's a certain distortion, obviously, uh, as a result of private equity strategy. And I'll note for the listener that I actually interviewed um, uh, Professor Olson. You may be aware of her Hopkins volume out last year, ethically challenged private equity storms healthcare. But mm. um, was that a choice or did you not have time? But certainly PE plays an increasing influence. It really does. And it really was a matter of just not having enough time. In fact, uh, as you noted, it runs about an hour. There were there was a lot that that could have been in the movie and that really did wind up on the cutting room floor. Uh, we've even uh, uh, had requests for a 30 minute version of the movie and the uh, the director has has just completed that. Uh, so uh, it's just a, it was just a matter of not being able to include everything that we wished and that was really relevant and pertinent to 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 the way hospitals operate these days. Okay, thank you. Let's now, I, again, I do want to spend more time on the solution than the problem side, and I'm sure you're very well of these three related, these interrelated policies. So these are three policies the feds have implemented in the last few years. I'll, I'll note them. You're very familiar with these again. The Affordable Care Act's minimum loss ratio, more recently, is legislation regarding price transparency. Uh, and it, along with site-neutral payments, uh, seem to be uh, this session or this Congress's interest again. So yeah. relative to trying to manage uh, prices, uh, to my mind, these seem to be the most prominent uh, federal policies of, of recent. Well, what's your take on any or all of these? Well, I think you're, I think they're they're all very important. And in fact, I testified before Congress in 2009. Uh, about, among other things, the medical loss ratios and and the direction they were heading prior to the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. And there was uh, constant and intense pressure from shareholders on the big for-profit insurers to spend less and less on care. So that was why Congress addressed it. I would say that uh, there, there have been some unintended consequences of that part of the, the legislation, as we have seen uh, insurance companies grow and grow by vertical integration and are much more now into healthcare delivery. So it's uh, distorted that. And I think uh, insurance companies, in my view, are abusing that provision in, in, in ways that enables them to avoid um, the, the provisions of, of the medical loss ratio uh, portion of the Affordable Care Act. It was significant. Uh, insurance companies were indeed uh, uh, trying to spend less and less, uh, not trying, but actually doing that. 
because of pressure from from Wall Street and, and investors. The, the 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 problem that I've uh, I, I, I'm I'm hearing from more and more people is that uh, the one of the unintended consequences is that uh, insurance companies have even less incentive to ratchet down or try to control healthcare prices because as they go up, uh, insurance companies are able to demand more in premiums, um, but because healthcare is more expensive. Uh, the uh, it's easier for for them to meet that requirement of spending 80 or 85 percent of uh, of premium dollars on on paying claims or on activities that presumably improve care. And that, by the way, was one of the things the industry insisted on and was able to get as the regulations was was be, were being written. I was actually a part of that cons- uh, when I served as a consumer representative to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners getting deep in the weeds here, but the uh, Congress gave the NAIC the responsibility of recommending recommend, uh, regulations for how to implement the medical loss provision. The insurance industry really uh, lobbied hard and got uh, uh, some leeway to be able to include things other than paying claims in the uh, medical loss uh, into the areas of, of things that are exempt from the medical loss ratio. Well, and, and it, you're right. The MLR uh, during the ACA debate was a, was a was a massive dogfight. What was in, what was out, what was counted, what wasn't towards the percentages. Yeah. Um, I did note as well, price transparency legislation was passed recently. There's been a lot of, let's just, maybe I'll for, uh, term it as passive aggressiveness on hospitals complying. And then once yeah. again, I know f- uh, there is some appetite uh, this session uh, relative to, again, uh, site neutral payments, which, for example, the American Hospital Association loathes. Um, but again, to what what's your sense relative to the the extent to which these have been successful? I think there 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 has been and continues to be uh, efforts in, uh, in Congress to try to uh, increase transparency. Uh, as you noted, there 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 have uh, have been uh, measures that have been enacted that. Uh, uh, require hospitals to be more forthcoming with uh, with how much they charge uh, and their relationships uh, and, and the negotiated arrangements with insurance companies. Uh, both insurers and hospitals have fought that. Uh, uh, hospitals have been extremely reluctant and have have not been in compliance to to a large extent. Uh, slowly, I think more and more are becoming more compliant with that requirement. Um, site neutral. You're, you're, you're right there too. It's uh, fiercely opposed by uh, uh, American Hospital Association, uh, and it is something that I think that uh, most people don't have a clue what that what that is or whatever what it what it means and and how it could uh, affect prices and how much we, it costs for us to stay in the hospital. Uh, it would be comparable to what uh, uh, Maryland uh, is doing, and that's something that we have uh, covered in the movie mm-hmm. about uh, how all payers in Maryland, regardless of whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance, or uh, uninsured folks pay the same rate. Uh, and you pay the same, it's, well, I'm kind of uh, talking about apples and oranges here, but some of the site neutral um, um, efforts, uh, I think we're talking about pertains to uh, whether uh, a person gets care uh, delivered in a 
a clinic that's independent or one that's owned by a hospital. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, absolutely. So if you're getting, say, a surgical procedure in a hospital or an ambulatory surgical center, say, name two, it wouldn't matter the location, yeah. uh, that provider gets the same uh, reimbursement, correct? Yeah. And that's uh, that certainly has been something before state legislatures as well, too. And the uh, hospital industry has really fought hard against that because, uh, as you know, uh, and I'm sure your listeners know, the uh, industry, the, the hospital business has has acquired uh, physician practices and clinics. Uh, uh, they're now part of the overall hospital system. And typically uh, the. Uh, the patients um, uh, are subjected to, or in their insurers, a facility fee uh, if uh, they go to uh, a doctor uh, operating in a clinic or a practice that's owned by the hospital. Um, hospitals maintain that it's uh, it's necessary for them to do that, but uh, uh, from the patient perspective, uh, you can go to the same doctor that you've always been going to, but because the the doctor's practice has been recently acquired by the hospital, uh, you will pay more or your insurer will have mm-hmm. to pay more uh, because of the facility fee that's been tacked on. Right. In fact, some people argue the, the unintended negative consequence of this policy is it, it, it incents consolidation, as you suggested, hospitals buy uh, physician practices. I, I, I noted Uwe uh, Reinhardt, the former yeah. Princeton economist, mostly because relative to site-neutral payment, you may remember his comma, which I, I always recall. Um, Site-neutral payment in theory would address his, his, his sarcasm, which was the finest health care in the world costs twice as much as the finest health care in the world, which is to say you can get the exact same care in two different places and pay totally different uh, prices. I, I, do have, I do have two other questions, and I do want to get to Maryland uh, because you do spend a fair amount of time on the Maryland all-payer waiver. Um, the first question is, and, and this, this issue too, is a way to try and, um, let's just say improve, um, uh, the return and that's the community benefit. You may remember the Affordable Care Act, uh, revised the idea of the community benefit for the listener is that if you're not, if you're a nonprofit, so you're not paying property tax, uh, the government wants to be assured that you're earning your nonprofit status, so you're supposed to demonstrate, um, say, non-reimbursed or charity care uh, as part of your community benefit contribution. Now, there's been a fair amount of gaming relative to how hospitals report their community benefit. There's off and on, particularly Senator Grassley amongst others, but we need to make more stringent community benefit criteria and reporting. Uh, where are you on the promise of community benefit? Well, I, uh, I I think clearly there should be uh, laws and regulations in place at both the federal and the state level that that uh, uh, that govern this. Because if a, a hospital uh, maintains that it's nonprofit, and I think a better term here is tax exempt, right? Uh, but uh, if they're not paying taxes, uh, if they're not contributing to the local tax base, they absolutely should be obligated uh, to. Uh, uh, provide a portion of what they take in uh, to compensate for their lack of paying taxes, to help improve the health of people in the communities that they presumably serve. And that certainly is important because there are a lot of people in in, in this country who live in neighborhoods that um, uh, where, where people's health is not good. And 
the, the community benefit. The work community is very important because we're talking to a certain extent here about population health, which is another term that's kind of trending in this area. Mm -hmm. But uh, what can hospitals do to improve the health and well-being of the population that the hospital uh, presumably serves? Uh, it's very, very important. And uh, I'm glad that that uh, lawmakers are are paying attention to it. And we wanted to make sure that this this movie addresses that and hopes uh, can help uh, be a catalyst for uh, lawmakers to pay more attention to that and to make sure that hospitals that maintain a tax exempt status are indeed complying with uh, with their obligations. OK, uh, thank you. Before I get uh, uh, again to Maryland, a couple more. I, I noted intentionally in the intro that hospital pricing or prices have little correlation to care quality, and I added our value, and again, value defined as outcomes achieved relative to spending. I'm sure you're aware that as odd as it is, um, I have to believe that healthcare in this country is the only large industry that does not measure really routinely, if at all, for value. This is, as you may know, this has been Michael Porter's passion, the Harvard professor for many years. Yeah. Uh, it helped motivate him to form the, the ICHOMS, uh, the International Consortium for um, uh, Outcome Measurement. What, how and why is it still possible uh, that we make almost no effort uh, to try to measure uh, for value? I will say as an aside, before Senator Alexander retired as chair, well, retired from the, from the Senate and as chair of the Health Committee, he had a bill in 2019 um, and I actually spent a lot of time talking to his staff on a one-sentence revision that said that uh, there would be created a, a national entity, nonprofit, um, that would measure uh, based on insurance, you know, data, commercial insurance data. Of course, de-identified it as appropriately. Uh, would measure spending related to outcomes achieved, or try to calculate for. A, a value a score. Um, you note this briefly in the film. What's your, how sanguine are you about us getting to value? Well, uh, I, I, I have to be honest. I'm not too terribly optimistic, at least in the near term. <laughs> uh, these, these entities, the, the hospital companies and the entities that own them uh, uh, make a lot of money in the, in the status quo. And uh, uh, we have a situation, of course, as you're exactly right, uh, uh, it probably is the only industry that we just really have no no handle on on quality and the correlation between what you pay and what you get yeah. in terms of quality and value. Uh, uh, the, 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 uh, we have a, a political system that enables a big special interest to spend boatloads of money to influence public policy, to uh, make sure that provisions that are in pieces of legislation that could do a world of good uh, are stripped out or that the, the, the overall bill doesn't pass if the industry doesn't like it. We've seen it pay, play out time and time again. And it's, as you know, uh, very, very hard for, for lawmakers at any level of government to pass any significant piece of health care reform um, if it would uh, in some way uh, endanger somebody's profit margins. Uh, so uh, because of our political system, the 
the way that we enable uh, entrenched special interests to spend so much money to influence the outcomes of elections and public policy, I you know, just can't be terribly optimistic. And I say this to a lot of folks who are engaged in healthcare reform efforts. Uh, it's good that you do that. Thank you. Um, but unless you start paying some attention to money in politics, uh, you just, as I used to say where I come from, whistling Dixie. Well, I, I appreciate uh, the answer. I'll say that I'm sure you're well aware the healthcare industry spends about a half a billion annually in lobbying. Uh, yep. It's certainly f- far more than any other industry, including def- the defense industry. So needless yeah. to say, they have quite a bit of influence. Uh, I thought you might drop the phrase uh, regulatory capture. But it's the same yep. point. Thank you. It's the same point. Uh, exactly. It's just extended to a different part of government. You're absolutely right. right. Uh, it's uh, it's pervasive. Uh, speaking of the industry, they were not pleased, and I and and I think we'll find out for certain in the upcoming June MedPAC report. The Congress passed legislation to work towards a unified post-acute care prospective payment system, and for various reasons, some legitimate. Uh, needless to say, the post-acute space providers were not. Uh, happy at all about this. And it looks like um, that issue, for again, for various reasons, uh, will never come or that legislation will never come to uh, fruition. Let's get to Maryland and price caps. I'm sure you're well aware, and I've interviewed, uh, I'm sure you're well aware, Dr. Berenson, Bob Berenson, uh, his work, he's done a lot of work on uh, price caps or fixed budgets. You probably know as well, The Economist, also the chair of MedPAC, Mike Chernu, at Harvard, he's published a, a, at least a few, if not several, papers on um, fixed budgets for healthcare spending or same difference price caps. Um, very intelligently thought through uh, and, and drafted. Uh, never seemed to really get very far. Um, feel free to talk about them in isolation or feel free to go to uh, the film's discussion at some length again. Uh, Maryland's all-payer waiver. And I will say, and, and meaning to say, if you could explain generally how the waiver works, although, believe it or not, 10 years ago, I interviewed somebody in 2013 on the Maryland all-payer. At the time, it was up for being the waiver being renewed. In any event, if you could explain briefly the, the pay all-payer waiver. And the other aspect of it is I'm interested in why, and I've had this conversation off and on. You may know, you may know Dr. Steve Cha at CMS, a former Waxman staffer. Um, why is Maryland the only one doing this? Although there are other states in the past, but this is Maryland is last standing. So I'll, I'll stop right. and let you respond. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that last part there because yeah, Maryland was the the last state that kept uh, some some measure of uh, of uh, price controls in effect. And as you noted at the top of our conversation, uh, we went through this period in the 80s of intense deregulation that that uh, uh, affected just about every industry, certainly healthcare in so many different ways that when you look back, it just wasn't a good idea in many cases because uh, it's, it, it, all you have to look uh, at uh, is this continuing uh, relentless medical inflation. Maryland uh, did stick with it, with regulations, and uh, they, the waiver they got was from uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services mm-hmm. To enable them to have a system in which every payer, uh, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid, and of course those programs pay different, pay uh, uh, providers differently, and 
private insurers pay a different price for self-insured. Uh, excuse me, a, a, a uninsured person pays pays a different price. Um, but in Maryland, everybody pays the same thing. They did uh, get a waiver that's enabled them to to keep doing this, so that at least the federal programs uh, are paying the same thing. Uh, and uh, the requirement is that uh, private insurers and everybody else does as as well. That has simplified the system and has over time been a much more rational way, in my view, of, of paying for health care. They have the additional element that's more recent of having global budgeting that is um, uh, 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 also has enabled Maryland to have uh, more of the ability to control hospital price increases in other states and to make sure that the hospitals uh, have a budget that is reasonable enough for uh, the hospitals that have very thin profit margins to stay open. Uh, and we're talking about hospitals in rural areas and and, and the cities uh, in, in Maryland. Maryland has had the fewest hospital closures of any state in the country uh, because of the way that they have implemented both all-payer and, and global budgeting. We've seen, in, in, in fact, I did some of the interviews for the movie, uh, in Tennessee, Tennessee has had the second highest uh, number of hospital closures in the country behind Texas. Over over a dozen hospitals have closed in, in Tennessee over the past several years. And it's because of payer mix being just so out of whack in, in so many communities in this country. In, in those communities in Tennessee, uh, they were serving uh, predominantly older communities, poorer communities. Um, very little uh, private insurance, and so these hospitals just couldn't keep their doors open. Uh, and as a consequence, people in those communities are ill-served. They uh, and they they now, if they need hospital care, have to go many miles away. Uh, so that's a long way of answering your question, but that's kind of how the, the situation uh, has uh, developed in in Maryland that enables them to do this. It took some political will. Uh, and some resistance, some bucking of the trend back in the 80s, but also uh, some foresight on the part of, of, of lawmakers at the both federal and, and state level for Maryland. The Maryland congressional delegation said, let's stick with this and let's see what we can get some waivers, for, how we can get some waivers from the from the federal government to do what we think is the right thing. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm familiar. Maryland, there were some uniquenesses relative to Maryland state politics. I've, I've, yeah. I've had this explained to me, I believe, by uh, Joe Antos at AEI several years ago, um, and it and and they were and they were really truly unique. Uh, so you you and after Joe explained it, you were left with no one else is going to be able to do this because it was some odd constellation of of reasons that came together enabling him to pull this off. Do you have any sense? Uh, uh, although the track record, of course, is pretty anemic, any sense or optimism? Uh, for example, Montana, the state's healthcare policy, they they got a lot of press a few years ago about uh, doing something just for state health uh, employee coverage. What's your sense about this idea uh, being replicated elsewhere? Well, it is uh, it is it will be a rough slog in other states. You're, you're right. The stars did align in a certain way for Maryland to do what it's doing. And uh, right now it, it would be uh, significantly, uh, a significantly higher 
measure difficulty, I would think, for other states to do this, although other states are looking at it. One of the reasons we did this film and included that was to make sure there was an awareness of what Maryland is doing and that employers in particular uh, are aware because employers pay so much of health care for health care in this country. Uh, uh, we, we hope that at least some advocacy groups and employers and politicians can can understand this is something that is worth looking at. Uh, and, and I think you're seeing people on both sides of the political spectrum coming to take a look at what Maryland has done and, uh, uh, and write about it and talk about it in positive ways. Uh, the uh, uh, last year, uh, Zeke Emanuel, who um, uh, mm-hmm. worked in the Obama administration, uh, Dr. Zeke Emanuel and Dave Johnson, who is uh, uh, with the University of Chicago, uh, and, and, and does consulting as well. Uh, he, uh, but he's a conservative. They co-authored a piece with, uh, I think, one or two other folks, uh, looking at the uh, two-part uh, uh, piece on, on Maryland's uh, experience, and uh, it's a very favorable uh, piece. So I think that, that there's, we are part of an effort to try to educate lawmakers, employers, and the public at large it doesn't have to be this way, but it will require quite a bit of advocacy and support uh, uh, by employers and others with influence to to get states to move forward because you are bucking, uh, as we said before, vast amounts of money that will be spent to try to keep it from happening. Right. I, I won't go into – I'm sure you're familiar with the Angus Deaton, Deaths of Despair, their chapter on healthcare prices and the effect it has on – uh, increasing uh, economic uh, disparities in this country. Yep. Uh, pretty yep. sobering. And, and he's a Nobel Prize winner. So at Princeton, yes. I believe he knows what he's talking about. And it's also, also given numerous times congressional testimony. So you somewhat answered the question, but I'll maybe just restate it. And if you could say more, and that's the question about the film and your hope for it, expectations, what legs might it have? Um, you know, for example... Uh, when you say bipartisan, uh, the ranking member of the Senate Health Committee is a physician, uh, of course, Cassie from Louisiana, of course, the chair, yeah. uh, Bernie Sanders from Vermont. Um, you know, they thought, you know, it's probably more widened, but help has some jurisdiction. Uh, who knows on the House side? Um, but any sense uh, of the influence the film might have? on policy reform, either obviously at the state or federal level? Well, I'll, I'll start with federal. And I do think there is a, a, a real chance that we'll start seeing lawmakers pay more attention to this, partly because of the film. We uh, are, uh, we, we've had screenings across the country in theaters, but we're also going to be having some screenings on Capitol Hill, um, probably a 30-minute version of the movie, uh, just to accommodate the, the schedules that members of Congress and staff have. But we're looking to do that this summer uh, on both the House and the Senate side. I'm talking to lawmakers to uh, uh, in both parties to serve uh, uh, as uh, uh, host or co-host of, of, of the uh, screenings of the movie. There is interest and there is bipartisan interest in looking at uh, health care pricing, including at hospitals. So I think, uh, 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 you know, for anything to be happened, certainly in a divided Washington and a divided Congress, you've got to you've got to try to get some bipartisan support or your legislation is doomed from, mm-hmm. you know, from, 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 the, from the get go. Um, but um, 
uh, we're encouraged when I say we, those of us who were involved in the, in the making of the movie, that there is interest uh, in Washington among both parties and also uh, in communities around the country. One of the things that is emerging, uh, the, uh, the executive producer is a businessman in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania, north of Philadelphia, uh, and uh, uh, the controller of Lehigh County uh, has been inspired by this movie uh, and other things that he's looked at uh, and is really doing implementing some things that are sa that saving taxpayers in that county quite a bit of money. Uh, and uh, uh, so we want to try to get conversations at the local level to get local politicians and and uh, elected officials to see this movie. Uh, and so, you know, we wouldn't have done it if we didn't think that it would be useful and maybe catalytic in getting conversations going at all levels of government. Thank you. Since you mentioned Pennsylvania, I'll note for the listener that UPMC is discussed uh, in the film. Um, I, I, I have to say, as an aside, we have a niece who's a resident at UPMC at the moment. Um, and you're probably well aware that Kaiser is buying Geisinger. Yep. So uh, healthcare in Pennsylvania is going to get, I, I would hope, more interesting. I think it will. <laughs> so, I, I think it will. It was really quite, at least I paid a lot of attention when when, the, when we learned that, that Kaiser was swooping in to buy Geisinger, uh, which obviously has been around for a very long right. time, and Geisinger's uh, maintained a, a, quite a good reputation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, yeah, it's going to shake things up. No, I'm sure. I'm very interested uh, to see how that evolves. But with that, uh, Wendell, we're about at our time. Uh, genuinely a pleasure, uh, particularly considering the date and hour. I'll say this. I've, I've admired your work for many years. Uh, congratulations you. on this effort. And I hope uh, it gets a fair airing, as they say, on Capitol Hill. You have a very good holiday. Thank you. You too, David. Thank you so much. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.